Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that doesn't do gesture politics because I don't really work over audio. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. In this episode, we're discussing the reaction to England's defeat in the European Championship final. Players were left heartbroken, the government was left with egg on its face, and one fan ended up with a flare up his arse. But where does this leave the nation? First about patriotism, Steve. Hello, LJ, if you're listening. It's been a weird time, isn't it? We've uh, talking of gesture politics. I, I think we've got a prime minister who, every time a Tory MP criticised them players taking the knee, he had to put another England flag up onto Downing Street, which I'm guessing is why there were so many. But something that seems to have come out of the tournament is that Gareth Southgate and his squad seem to have sort of helped develop a more inclusive English patriotism, don't they? I mean, certainly from from, from my side, it was that uh, essay that Southgate wrote just before the start of the tournament, I think it was. Uh, a very interesting and eye-opening uh, experience for me, simply because, I'll be honest, like I was quite surprised to see the manager of the English football team writing something like that. It's not the sort of thing you, you expect from... Uh, from someone in that position, but Southgate took it upon himself to to pen something meaningful and quite in its own way, little beautiful. So, well, and uh, I think the Tories were a bit surprised as well because apparently there's unnamed Tory sources who said that he couldn't possibly have written it because it was well written, and therefore maybe it was authored by an agent of deep woke. Uh, and if they believe that, that tells you a lot about the thinking processes going on in the Conservative Party at the moment. Because this isn't the only example of, of, of that, this kind of almost conspiratorial mindset where there is this conspiracy of woke individuals to try and undermine Britain or the Conservative. It's, it's absolute nonsense of the highest order, but it very much does seem to be propagating throughout the Conservative backbenches. And you, you can see it a little bit in the responses um, that some uh, MPs seem to have had to um, the actual uh, uh, loss in the finals. Darren Grimes is uh, went, went a bit viral on, uh, on on Twitter because he basically said that Marcus Rashford maybe maybe spend more time practising penalties than politics, eh, Marcus? And it's just like ratioed to to hell and back because it's just like what are you trying to do mate but there is this notion that all of these people are a part of something bigger that they couldn't possibly just you know have beliefs and want to stand and act on them based on you know their experiences and their life you've you've got two things going on haven't you you've got the right getting high on its own supply because they've created this false idea that there's loads of woke people going around setting fire to pictures of Winston Churchill, blowing up statues, you know, who all end up being massively important people who meet in a cabal in a Zoom call somewhere in Islington or something. But equally, the line that the Conservative Party has been trying to play for about the last year um, about playing politics with issues. The Tories don't really like it if you start playing politics, which in their view also seems to be about young men who are millionaires providing food for children who can't afford to eat. I mean, I'm guessing the logical extension is that we should just take the politics out of politics, really. There is a definite 
stay in your lane energy coming from the, the 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 right wing of british politics at the moment where if you have the audacity to comment on something political but aren't of the political class almost maybe it, it, it's it's really odd especially for like a political movement at the moment which is supposed to be anti uh, anti elite it's very, very interesting that anybody that kind of comes out and basically says, I disagree with you on this, gets told, get back in your lane, regardless of their background, regardless of the colour of their skin. Although it tends to happen much more regularly and vocally to people who just happen to be women, ethnic minorities, uh, as you, you might expect. It's weird but- because on the left, sorry to interrupt, but you almost have, they seem to see it's the opposite problem. So on the left, they see this cancel culture of you know anyone um, who is, in their view, sort of straight white male isn't allowed to have opinions anymore and is being hounded for their right of centre beliefs. Uh, and actually, I think it's quite revealing that that's what they seem to think the intolerant left is like when they just go on, as you say, sort of, if anyone dares to have an opinion about the competence of the government, it shouldn't be allowed, even apparently ex-prime ministers. But we'll get to that. I think what's interesting... This feels more anecdote, maybe rather than data. But the like this tournament feels big in a way, say that the two thousand and five Ashes felt big. And one way it feels big is just seeing lots of uh, posts on social media from people who are black, people who are Muslims, but wearing hijabs. I've seen a couple of posts saying that you know, I, I wear a hijab. I've not usually felt, or other ethnic minority back- backgrounds, essentially saying I've never really felt the England football team spoke to me before i've always been uncomfortable wearing an england shirt this england team show that i can uh give me an, an england football team i can cheer for and be proud of and feels like it speaks to me and i don't remember that ever happening before no and certainly from from my perspective as someone who was to be to, as as you well, well, well know uh is not particularly interested in football I, one of the things i found quite interesting about this tournament was not so much the actual football but the reactions to it where on Twitter you had people sharing reactions to like different goals that had been scored. And there was, I'm, I'm sure you probably saw this, but there was a video that she did the rounds, which was off from like a um, Islamic mosque or, 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 or seminary or, or something. An Islamic that. mosque as opposed to those other kind of mosques. Your pedantry knows no bounds. But there was a, but basically there was a, it was a video from a, from a mosque where, a load of, Don't bother repeating uh, it, Steve, because the first bit's going in. <laughs> but I, I need to say it again so I can get my fucking point out. <laughs> oh, sorry. You, I'll, I'll try to interrupt this time. Um, there was a video from a mosque where, unsurprisingly, a load of people um, in there were watching the footy. And, you know, they're going absolutely nuts when Kane scores a goal, which is a really cool image to see. And there was another one where I think, it, I think basically a, a bangra a parade which was kind of going down the streets of i think it was somewhere in the west midlands a diverse crowd of people celebrating victory celebrating englishness in a utilizing you know a, a form of music which comes from a very specific section of british society um but open to everybody in it and it's been really quite fascinating to see and really pleasant to see as well because it really does almost feel like there is this much more like almost like Englishness opened up a little bit. Yeah, it's a shame I'm going to piss all over it really now, isn't it? Before we go on, talk about some of the abuse that a few players specifically received, I think there's been a, a few 
kind of overreactions to this. Um, and one example that I saw someone highlight, which I, I think is is worth just going into a little bit for, for context, is the example of France 98. France hosted the World Cup in 1998. They won it. And it was probably one of the first French teams that had, uh, there was a, an ethnically diverse team. So you had Zinedine Zidane was one of the best players whose parents were Algerian. Uh, you had other players like Lilian Taram, who were from Guadeloupe originally. Uh, you had also people like Marcel Desailly, whose family were from sub-Saharan Africa. That team at the time, because it won, because it was so ethnically diverse, it was seen as heralding this new French identity. And uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who you might know, he's got a famous daughter. So the, the guy in the, uh, the Front National, he explicitly said before the, team, before the tournament that this was an artificial team. It didn't represent France and that foreigners were part of the French team. So at the time, it was a very short-term loss for the Front National. You had some people wondering if they would ever really recover uh, that, that kind of gaffe for want of a better way, I suppose, gaff if we say it's someone telling the truth, even if it's a horrific thing. And actually, it hasn't really been a catalyst for uh, the French nation as you would like. You've got a lot of ghettos which have stayed poor and stayed ghettos. The Front National haven't gone away. Marie Le Pen, who's the daughter of Jean-Marie, she's riding high in the polls, serious contender in next year's French presidential elections, which is terrifying. But and in 2001, France played Algeria, and actually, you had Frenchmen of Algerian, of North African origin, were booing the Marseillaise. They were booing all every French player except Sudan because they were frustrated um, at the isolation they felt from the idea of Frenchness. So there's a few things. I think one is it's incredibly positive, but I think the other thing is that I don't think we need to we we can draw too many conclusions with what we've seen over the past four weeks especially and, and just thinking about london 2012 as well as an example where i think people like to hark back to that as some sort of golden age of britishness well austerity already kicked in by then i think we just have to be a, a bit careful before we sort of roll out the cadillac and assume that because we've we've got some nice footballers that everything's going to be all right yeah, no, absolutely. There is some some definite truth to what you're saying there. I mean, as you say, you can see that from uh, that there's still most definitely work to be done in a number of different ways based on just the reaction to what happened to the three um, black players who who missed the penalties um, in, in in the final. They got a load of um, abuse on online to the extent where now actually I believe one person at the very least one person has actually been arrested. For, for the comments they made against them, um, I believe. They paid the penalty, you might say. <sighs> That's awful. But the racist but abuse, absolutely. The pun, well, it's probably predictable, actually. Going back to a serious discussion and not puns. Uh, and this is this is a point which seems to have been kind of like hammered home about like the the football team and it's about the English football team and its potential for future tournaments in particular. I think it's next year where the World Cup is uh, or is meant to be out in, is it Dubai? Qatar. Qatar, yeah. Um, Well-known uh, liberal bastion. Exactly. Youth of the team is something that's been kind of like hailed as kind of like a, a strength and benefit for from a footballing perspective uh, because of, of how young they are and how the fact that these 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 people are going to get just get better. They're not even in their prime yet. But also when you have a team that consists of Marcus Rashford, who's not afraid to get political, uh, Sterling, who is been lambasted 
a hell of a lot in in, in the media for throughout the uh, throughout the past few years, um, and is isn't afraid to just kind of basically stick his stick two fingers up to to them at this point and just say you're being idiots. When you've got people like was it was it Tyrone? I've forgotten his, what his surname was. How can you forget the footballer from Birmingham? I know. I don't follow football. Yes, but you follow Birmingham. We're the <laughs> highest ranked Birmingham-based political podcast in the world, Steve. <laughs> or at least politically related, I assume. <laughs> we at least should be able to name a few members of the Aston Villa squad. Who's the guy uh, they all want to bring on? The attacking Gr- footballer with the massive calves. Graylish? Graylish? Not, that it? not Gr- Chris Grayling, no. No, it would not be a super stub. <laughs> if we brought Chris Grayling on after 70 minutes. That would be amazing. Um, no, yeah, no, Jack, Jack, Jack Graylish, something like that. Yeah, that, that'll do. Yeah, but anyway, um, the player I was actually referring to, because I just looked it up, is Tyrone Mings, um, who went out of his way to just absolutely lambast Pretty Patel to the extent where it was getting like front page news as a result of it. It was merciless, wasn't it? It really was. It was amazing. Um, but you have these young, and I, and I don't mean this 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 phrase derog- uh, derogatively. Some of these people are like nineteen years old and things like that. They basically are, in many ways, kids. They are adults, but they are very very young, and they are ready, willing, and able to just stick two fingers up to people that they disagree with. And that is a very interesting thing from this perspective of this isn't like a silver bullet which magically solves English racism or or, or anything like that. But if you have a team of people who are going to be uh, in the national uh, national kind of like discourse for quite a while due to their their youth, there's a lot of potential for them to be make a very positive impact overall. I, I found it interesting actually. There was three young players who took the penalty. So Marcus Rashford, Bukayo Saka, Jaden Sancho. As you say, all, a couple of teenagers, I think Rashford's in his early 20s, one to about 22 or three. I think it says something for the use of social media now that very... It, it, I think this is an extension of youngsters on TikTok block booking tickets for Trump rallies. You've got young people who are using their platforms to to do what they think is good um whether that's to stop the bad guy whether that's to feed young children whether it's tyro mings taking on the home secretary i think it's interesting that you're seeing conservative mps not really sure how to cope with that because you've got like the, the heckle at pmqs that somehow he was a labor member it's an interesting point you raised there because um i came across something online but, uh, but they pointed out that essentially the uh, the government's majority in the House of Commons means that, for the most part, opposition in the uh, m- meaningful opposition in that in the House of Commons is kind of difficult to achieve. You know, everything's probably getting through unless there's a massive, massive Tory rebellion, which you know isn't necessarily that likely. Which means the act of political opposition doesn't emerge from the House of Commons; it emerges from outside of it. And the Conservatives and most politicians as a, as a whole don't know how to respond to non-politics people actually getting properly political in some form which is why you had this kind of situation when Rashford starts you know just wanting to make sure kids have had to get a good meal every day they don't know how to effectively respond to that which means you have the have the have the sight of them basically just 
refusing to do it, refusing to do it, refusing to do it, and then eventually backing down. I've lost track. I've literally lost track of how many times they've done that now, but it's happened like every. <laughs> it's happened at like every half term, every every holiday basically since the pandemic hit. I think. I think you've got an interesting point around that kind of like that TikTok generation or like that generation of people who are basically you know Generation Z or Zoomers or whatever you want to call them. Screwed. Screwed. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, in many ways, yes, but also they're digital natives. They have just grown up with the internet. Like millennials, our generation, people of our sort of age, we are very good with the internet. We're very comfortable with it, but we can still remember a time where we didn't have it. They don't have that. And that means they are, it's it's basically second nature to them, which means they are a lot more comfortable uh, and a lot more, in many ways, uh, sensible with the internet um than than people uh than than older people are but it also means they know how to use it more effectively that's very dangerous for uh for a conservative government or any government really that gets on the wrong side of uh of younger people i think it's i think it's also because they have not been able to in terms of meal in terms of say funding free school meals which has been a continual problem there is no good justification for it to be honest if you're going to talk about finances you look heartless it's kind of hard to do it on principle unless you talk about how and some people have done this haven't they i believe ben bradley has uh, that somehow all parents are who on whose families eligible for free school meals are just going to spend the money on drugs or alcohol or something um, which is just morally contemptible so in the end, the only thing you can do really is impugn the motives of these people, as, as we were saying earlier. Just on the point of, of that opposition, okay, yeah, there's extra parliamentary opposition that is arising. I think there is, a when, you, when a government has such a big majority like this, I think what does happen is you have a group of people in the governing party who band together and become regular rebels on a group of issues. You saw it under uh, New Labour famously with their big majorities, one of whom subsequently became the party leader uh, of a group of 10, 15, 20 Labour MPs who were constantly rebelling. You saw it under the coalition as well. The ERG, I believe, it first started because that coalition had such a big majority, they could afford to have 30 or 40 Tory MPs rebelling over everything. I think it's one of the reasons why Cameron would probably have been quite happy to co- carry on with a Tory Lib Dem coalition because it gave them that buffer. And I think you're beginning to see it now. And there's a few tricky things. Again, we just just t- just mention them. They're kind of think of it as appetizers, listeners, that we can talk about in the months and weeks and years ahead. But stuff like the the vote on international aid, we had a bit of a podcast on a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, there was a miserable little compromise that meant it was passed. But again, majority of 80 is down to a majority of 35. Um, you've got a uh, a and something which should be getting a lot more coverage but isn't is the troubles amnesty which the government is talking about this week which the irish government have come out and basically said they think it's breaching international law <laughs> my understanding is that they've basically said they're going to end prosecutions for anyone because they can't stop soldiers from being prosecuted nothing says tough on law and order it's definitely a take isn't it yeah and what's what, what is quite interesting again just kind of going back to that is that you mentioned the um international like foreign aid vote and there's certainly i, w- I don't want to say like the, the you know there's a there's a grouping of tory wets because they're not wets like most of the, the tory wets have been kicked out of parliament now as, as a result of johnson literally kicking a load of them out of the party but 
there is certainly a, a group of MPs who are more moderate on a lot of kind of like cultural issues. Um, and I think for the for the Conservative Party, like the the, for, the foreign aid votes really comes down to, to like a culture a culture thing rather than economics one at this point. Um, and you've got even got people like um, Johnny Mercer, former Defence Minister, I think he was, um, who um, walked out of government or quit before he was pushed. God only knows, really, um, but was uh, very vocal. Um, uh, uh, over the past week or so in criticising his um, colleagues uh, on the Conservative backbenches um, who had been uh, basically taking that that ridiculous line of, or maybe if, you know, Rashford had spent more time practising penalties um, it, uh, rather than politics, he might have hit it, hit, hit that penalty. That, and kind of being very vocal about criticising people who were taking that line and actively saying, this is a stupid line to take. This isn't what Britain should should be about and so you do have when it comes to that notion of like to bring it back to that that english nationalism or patriotism um thing from the beginning there are certainly tory mps that get that but a lot of them don't and that's going to be an interesting dividing line to look at them moving forward well, very interesting because you have the the reaction to the english team taking the knee which again like most cultural issues actually most people support the english team taking a knee it's not really an issue wildly different opinions you've got wickham mp steve baker or to give him his proper title brexit hardman steve baker has actually was coming out and saying maybe we should not criticise players for taking the knees. Okay. And then, as you say, Johnny Mercer came out with an interesting article saying, well, okay, yes, groups like Black Lives Matter do take the knee and maybe they've got a, a wider agenda we don't agree with as Conservatives, but actually far-right groups use the poppy and I still wear a poppy. And you go, oh, blimey, I've just agreed with Johnny Mercer. I know, like um, a natural nuance, genuinely good take from him. It's I'm like, not, well, yeah. it's Johnny Mercer, I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> Give credit where credit's true. Even a stop clock is right twice a day, remember. Well, uh, listeners know that from our predictions, to be fair. Finally got England losing right. Um, <laughs> the weird, the weirdest take I saw was in, or was in the Spectator that said that it was imported from America and therefore shouldn't be used here. And I think they're going to be really, really annoyed when they find out where all our music's been coming on for the past 50 years. It was fine when the, was fine when the Beatles started copying American pop and it was fine when the Rolling Stones started incorporating in American R&B. But I draw the line at people kneeling down they're going to be even more annoyed when they discover the entirety of the conservative political strategy is imported from America as well, basically verbatim from the Republican playbook as well. And, and, and the television and the films and the food. And, and in many ways, to, to go back to the time of Mings, I think very rightly calling out Pretty Patel for stoking, refusing to say that fans were wrong to boo assuming that this i mean the, the tour is essentially trying to run two culture war bandwagons at the same time they try to run the england football team bandwagon and they try to run the anti-taking the knee bandwagon both of which are proving quite problematic and it, it serves them right for being charlatans maybe just before we finish because we have talked a lot about the horrific racist abuse that they've seen online interesting i think we, we talked about social media we didn't talk much about the press and something i found interesting was Actually, the, in term, just thinking about the Sun headline was that the, the, the print media has been very, very supportive of the players, which I know it's very easy to have sour grapes and 
you mentioned Raheem Sterling earlier. You think about the newspaper headlines that he's had in the past. And it's very easy to be cynical about what they're doing. But I still think it's good to see that change happening. Maybe just finish off. What do you think? There's been calls again for people posting on social media posts to be made anonymous. Uh, to, no, they haven't. That's exactly the opposite call. There's been calls for people to, to, to remove the anonymity uh, on, on social media. Everyone has to post with their own name. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have very mixed feelings on those sorts of proposals, primarily just because I, it becomes a very, to my mind, slippery, slippery slope. Um, and let's not let's not forget that there also are a number of accounts like online which are anonymous, which do actually very good works. Like for instance, Secret Barrister, um, who like has written a, a, I think two best-selling books at this point, um, uh, kind of like detailing you know how basically the judicial system has been completely screwed um, as a result of lack of funding and government reforms, all of these these different things. There are, in many ways, very good reasons for some people to remain anonymous online. And I do, I do feel like you would end up with things getting quite abused if you had either people being forced to post utilising their real names or you had some form of database which the government could then check against everything um, really easily. Um, we've already seen examples of, you know, things said on Twitter um, in jest, kind of going way too far. There was an entire Twitter joke trial where somebody just made a bad joke online and had to, went, went through an entire court process of being charged with all kinds of crimes and, and things. And I just, I, I feel like that's the sort of thing where you'd see more of that sort of stuff happening. And I suspect because our government and our representatives in government and our ministers and even like the civil servants and things um, that surround them are of a certain age and of a certain life experience and from a certain generation, they're not necessarily going to be able to utilize that thing in an effective way that doesn't actually limit effectively limit freedom of speech in, in some way. And that, for me is 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 concerning and a problem it's not to say that is it isn't feasible to do that um but i just i, I would not trust this, this government for definite to do it and i'm not even necessarily sure i'd trust any government to do it unless they actively demonstrated that they had put some serious thought into it and because this is dealing with digital stuff and governments in as a whole as a whole regardless of being left right english american french whatever don't deal with digital stuff very well generally. I'm a bit lap cold on the idea. Feeling cold in the hot take. That's a blue song, I think, about podcasting. I think I share your scepticism, similar-ish reasons, I suppose. I mean, the problem here is not the anonymity. The problem here is the racism. And there are plenty of people who are willing to abuse these black players with racist terms under their own name. There was at least one whose name I've forgotten, which is probably just as well. There was one comedian who was tweeting out racist stuff and openly tweeting out to the extent that comedy clubs started cancelling his gigs. So I'm sure he's probably got a great career on GB News coming up. So And, and that's the issue is you have to deal with the racism if you people are happy doing it in, in their own name. You've also got these polls in which there's always a small, min, a, a small minority, you know, five percent maybe 
of the British public are also openly willing to say to a pollster that they have racist views as well. So you, you deal with that. Uh, in terms of it being easy just to set up an on- anonymous account and abuse someone, obviously that's something that should be clamped down on. You'd say that's more for the tech companies really than the government, and there must be ways of of yeah. doing that. As you say, I, I think partly I worry about the the um, the free speech aspect. You mentioned the secret barrister whistleblowers as well. One of the books I'm reading at the moment is Rigged, which is about the history of Russian and American electoral interference. Uh, it's interesting that one of the facts in there is that a few years ago, Vladimir Putin required the anyone who wrote a blog um, where it got more than 3,000 views per post, um, they had to register their identity and couldn't post that anonymously. Uh, that wasn't because they were all being racist. I think that's the other aspect of it is... It feels like it's the solution. I don't think it is the solution. I think the problem you've here got online is you've got pe- people saying things online, which they used just to mutter to their mates in pubs. Yeah. Ultimately, the solution to this is actually having social media platforms take responsibility and actually act um, consistently uh, in uh, in upholding their own rules and guidelines and terms and conditions. Like being racist is again uh, and uh, uh, and abusing people is against Twitter's T's and C's. And let's let's be honest here: when we're talking about all of this stuff, we're talking about Twitter. We're not actually talking about TikTok or LinkedIn or even Facebook for the most part, though they do have their own separate issues in terms of their influence on discourse and, and things like that. But pr- pretty much, we're talking about Twitter here. Um, and if Twitter actively up, um, properly moderated stuff and uh, actually upheld its T's and C's in a, a consistent way, you know, it would be a, a, a lot easier to kind of handle this stuff. Yes, people would still be racist, but you'd then very quickly find that they end up removed um, from the platform, um, or at least if, if not permanently, then at least temporarily to the extent where most people even if you are, you know, racist, you probably learn, okay, I can't say that without getting in trouble. And therefore you don't say it. And yeah, that doesn't stop the way they think, but it stops them projecting that further, which then emboldens other people. So it really does matter to prevent them from speaking that that, that sort of stuff. I suppose the, the only problem with that is I just don't think self-regulation works for a lot of these companies. No, 100% it doesn't. What you actually need is government legislation to force them to do it. Mm. Um, like I, I am a massive, massive proponent of um, regulating social media um, because it, um, in fact, re- regulating most online tech, including Google and, and things like that, because they have basically just been let, let left to do their own thing um, with many positives, yes, but also some very significant negatives and they're not doing enough to actually solve the problems. And you don't trust the government to do it? Well, that feels like the kind of nihilistic ending that I want for this podcast. <laughs> And if you want more nihilism, you can always pay for it. But why would you bother, Steve? Well, why would you bother? Because it continue. Because if you did pay for it, it would go to help us run uh, this podcast and cover all of our costs. And if you were interested in helping us do that, you could go to patreon.com slash notenoughchampagne, where you can gain access to unique episodes, blog posts, all kinds of fun and games. Our website's notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Cram designed the logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. Happy plotting.
In this episode, we're discussing the reaction to England's defeat in the European Championship final. Uh, in fact, I've written semi-final down here. <laughs> so unaccustomed as I am to any form of hope. And that's twice I've done that. We're not allowed nice things. <laughs> 